San Diego. How's everybody doing? I hope you're hanging in there okay. These are challenging times, but I'm grateful to know that we're all in this together. That said, let's get to know another interesting San Diegan, shall we? This is the Name Drop San Diego podcast, and that is the goal of this show. I'm Abby Hamblin, and my co-host is Chrissy Totten. On this episode, we're talking to Ron Nearing. He's a Republican leader with a lengthy resume working in politics on the local, state, and national levels. Currently, he works as Director of International Training at the Leadership Institute, which teaches conservatives of all ages how to succeed in politics, government, and media. He's also recently been elected to the Crest, Dehesa, Harbison Canyon, and Granite Hills Planning Group. Ron has previously served as chairman of the Republican Party of San Diego County and chairman of the California Republican Party, and he has served on the Republican National Committee and as national spokesperson for Ted Cruz during his 2016 presidential campaign. You might also know his name from his campaign for lieutenant governor of California in 2014. Wow, that is quite the list, so clearly there's a lot to talk about. Let's play our conversation with Ron Nearing. Let's start off by asking about an amazing tidbit that we found in your online bio for the Leadership Institute where you work. It said that it's about your father. So I wondered if you could just explain. Um, he, he has a very interesting story. Yeah, so my parents were both born in Nazi Germany. My father was born in 1934, my mother in 1941. And uh, they had no more than a 10th grade education. They didn't come from wealth at all. It was very difficult conditions and my father found a way to get out of that town that he you know that he was in uh, by joining the German merchant marine so he became a cook's assistant which is like you know the bottom of the org chart on the ship uh, and uh, and for seven years he would travel between Europe and uh, and South America bringing you know Volkswagens to South America and bananas to Europe and back and forth. And the most valuable thing that I have from him is his logbook, written in his own hand in the 1950s, where it includes ports like Cartagena and uh, Rotterdam, but also places more familiar like New Orleans and Boston and, and New York. And so after seven years getting to see the world, my father went back to Germany. He left the Merchant Marines. He met my mother. Uh, and he persuaded her that uh, he wanted to raise his new family in freedom in America. And so in 1961, the two of them packed up and emigrated to uh, New York, uh, where they uh, settled uh, near some other German families who had come from the same town in Germany. Uh, and, uh, and they worked in a German food store. That was their first job. They were stocking shelves in a, you know, this German you know, local grocery store. Uh, they lived in an apartment above the garage behind the grocery store. And that's how they got started uh, in America. And, um, and so I don't come from any type of political background, uh, you know, whatsoever. Um, but, um, you know, so one thing I did learn from my father that I think is noteworthy is that he always voted. He never missed an election. He would all often bring me to the polling place and he always put on a tie when he went to vote. Uh, and uh, my father never became a wealthy man. He was a mechanic at a Mack truck dealership in New York, uh, but he felt that it was so important and the right to vote is so important that he would put on a, on a tie that he did not normally wear to work, of course, uh, but he would put on a tie and a jacket to go vote. And it was that important to him. 
What an amazing keepsake having that journal. Um, what were your father's politics? So my father uh, actually told a, a story very similar to what uh, former Governor Schwarzenegger told, and that is that um, when he came to America, he saw the two parties and he thought that the party that best reflected the reasons why he came to America was the Republican Party, because he came to America for uh, freedom and opportunity, and he saw the Republican Party as more reflective of that than the alternative. And so he became a Republican, and I think I picked some of that up uh, in, uh, in my time uh, as well. My mother was not very political at all, but my father had very strong ideas uh, about government. I would call him a, a lowercase l libertarian. He was very you know, he came to America for opportunity, and uh, and that's what he saw in the in the Republican Party. Oh, go ahead, Abby. You got it, Christy. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, I think there is a misconception out there. Sometimes we talk about it as if all immigrants are liberal, and that's clearly not the case. No, as a matter of fact, you have uh, many people who come to America who are fleeing big government in their own country, and so the Republican principle of limited government and freedoms that are protected and a government of enumerated and limited powers uh, should naturally be uh, appealing. Uh, and uh, that's what brought my father to the Republican Party, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and many other people uh, as well. And I think that uh, the Republican Party uh, has a natural ally in many people who come to this country. Uh, and, uh, and that should be greater. Uh, uh, there should be more effort there to help people see that connection. So I know you went to college in New York, but does that mean you also grew up there? Yes, I spent the first 21 years of my life developing a New York accent and the second 21 <laughs> years of my life trying to lose it. Uh, but yes, I went to, uh, so when I graduated uh, from high school, I went to public high school. Um, in New York uh, City? Ocean, uh, on Long Island. Okay. Um, and so uh, private school was out of the question and I applied to uh, seven different universities, uh, places like George Washington University and Georgetown and, and so on. But my family just simply couldn't afford uh, to go to one of these, you know, fancy private schools. So I went to the State University of New York at Stony Brook. I got a degree in political science. Uh, and, uh, and that's how I got, uh, that's how I got started. So I went to a state school because of uh, that, that was what uh, was financially possible. And I'm, I'm a big believer in, in state university for that reason. State school supporter here as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you does, does growing up in New York play any role in your political views? Because obviously that's a unique experience. So Long Island was very uh, Republican uh, and New York City was very Democratic. Uh, and so many of the people who moved out of New York City to Long Island were trying to get away from New York City of the 1960s and 70s, which was not as great of a, a place to be, I think what Rudy Giuliani should go down for in history is the great job he did turning New York City around uh, during his tenure uh, as uh, as mayor. So Long Island was very, uh, very Republican. And so because there were Republican campaigns to get involved with while I was in college, I got involved in some campaigns. I managed my first uh, campaign when I was 21 and still in college. And so uh, there were opportunities there because the Republican Party was competitive uh, on Long Island uh, and uh, at the time it still is. So how did you first get into politics? So my first week on campus, I saw uh, a blue flyer, I'll never forget, advertising a college Republican meeting in the student union building on campus. 
And uh, I had identified as a Republican at that point. As a matter of fact, I, uh, uh, I played Ronald Reagan at age 10 in fifth grade uh, in, a, in a debate, in a mock debate. Um, so I was little Ronald Reagan at, at age 10. That's amazing. And so Is there footage this was, of this there, anywhere? <laughs> no, there's no footage, uh, thankfully. Any photos? Um, but, uh, uh, nope, nope, no pictures. <laughs> Uh, but I assure you, I was in fifth grade once. Um, so I, uh, when I got to college, it was my first opportunity to get involved in anything, you know, Republican at all. And I, and I took an interest in it. And so that's really where I got, uh, where I got started. And I, I have a political science degree. Uh, and, and that has proven to be helpful. But much of what I learned about campaigns was really practical experience that I got while I was in college. And that's why I think it's so important for people while they're in college to get involved in other things as well, not as a diversion from academics, but to supplement it because it really does broaden your experience. So what brought you to San Diego? Obviously, you jumped right into becoming uh, the chair of the San Diego County Republican Party. But what was that what was that transition like? So in, uh, in 1996, I was working for U.S. Term Limits, which was an organization. So I, I moved to Washington after I graduated uh, from college, and I worked for a group called U.S. Term Limits, uh, which was working to advance initiatives to limit the terms of state legislators and members of Congress and so on. And in 1996, uh, a Supreme Court decision came down in U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton, which basically struck down state laws limiting the terms of members of Congress. And my job at US term limits was eliminated as a result. So there I was uh, 26 years old, involuntarily uh, unemployed. And, uh, and then I learned of a position that uh, the, the then chairman of the San Diego County Republican Party in 1996 was looking for a new executive director. And just through some political connections, uh, I, got, uh, I got a call and I applied for the job. And I'd only been to California once before. Uh, and so in 1996, at age 26, I was hired to be the executive director of the Republican Party of, uh, of San Diego County. That was the same year the Republican National Convention was held in San Diego. So it was a big, it was a big deal. And that's what brought me to California uh, for the first time. And then four years later, uh, I became the elected chairman of the Republican Party of San Diego County, which is an unpaid uh, position. I held that for six years and then uh, then went on to do uh, more things and have been very involved uh, ever since. As, you know, almost a lifelong member of the Republican Party, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the party over the years? Well, to me, the Republican Party will always be the party of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and uh, that's who was president uh, you know, he was elected in 1980 when I was 10 years old. He left office when I was 18. And so he really shaped my image of what the Republican Party is and what the Republican Party should be. And I think that um, our greatest strength is when we are the party of Reagan, meaning that we have that optimistic, forward-looking vision for the country, uh, that we speak in a way that brings people toward us uh, rather than uh, driving people away from us and so on. That doesn't mean that the Republican Party is ever going to be unanimously loved or any political party is going to be unanimously uh, loved. But Ronald Reagan, to me, was the greatest uh, politician of our, of our time, political figure of our time, because he had uh, that blend of principle, but also this positive forward-looking vision 
uh, of America. And he was, and he had the communication skills from his time as an actor and his time in radio to communicate that. And sometimes there are some figures uh, who lose sight of this uh, and uh, who might go in a different direction uh, from Reagan. And I think that ultimately that's, uh, that's to our detriment. So, um, uh, you know, I would like to see a Republican party that really has those Reagan-esque principles and approach uh, at, uh, at the center of it, because I think that works, uh, that really works uh, to our advantage. Since your time as chair here, how do you think the local, you know, the county Republican uh, Party has changed for better or worse? So when it's really important to understand that a local Republican Party only controls certain things um, and, and political brands are defined nationally. And this is a really important concept to understand uh, and that there is no Republican brand in San Diego or in California that's any different from the national Republican brand. And that's driven by media coverage. How much political news per day comes out of Washington versus how much political news per day comes out of Sacramento you know, or City Hall. It's overwhelmingly driven by, uh, by national news coverage. And so political parties are defined nationally. Um, the Republican Party of San Diego County uh, has become one of the strongest county Republican parties in the United States as measured by uh, the, the funds that it raises, the volunteers that it can mobilize and so on and so forth. What has been working to the detriment of the Republican party is there are demographic changes that are beyond the party's control. And for example, um, in, uh, when I left as chairman uh, of the county party in 2006 or 2007, there were 100,000 more Republicans than Democrats in the county. Now there are 240,000 more Democrats and Republicans. That is a 340,000 voter swing uh, that has occurred since that time. Uh, and that is not the fault of, or, or that is not the doing of either party locally. This doesn't mean that you know, the Republican party is ineffective and the Democratic party is more effective. There are broader demographic changes that are at work that the parties have to cope with, that the parties have to deal with. Uh, and, uh, and so that I think is the most pronounced change uh, that, uh, that, that we've had in San Diego County. And that's reflected by some of the recent election results where you have democratic control of the County Board of Supervisors, almost total control of the city of San Diego. The Democrats have really benefited from demographic changes and how those demographic changes are influenced by the national party brands. Uh, and that, that has worked in, uh, to their advantage. Are you saying that's how it actually is or how you think it should be? Because, you know, we asked the local candidates, do you stand with Trump? Do you vote with Trump? You know, and they all don't like it and all of that. But as the editorial board, you know, we do ask about the national politics and they don't always want to talk about it. But do you think they should? And that's the right way it should be going or the it's simply a reflection of it's a reflection of how the world is what that yeah. word republican and what that word democrat means is defined by what comes out of washington yeah uh, and and sometimes that benefits candidates sometimes that's to their detriment for example it was very much to the advantage of republican candidates in the uh, in the George W. Bush years, Bush 43 years, uh, when we were adding thousands of Republicans, we were expanding our lead over the Democrats every single month. And I remember that very distinctly because I would report on that at our monthly party meetings. And so that was a broader trend that was impacting that. So, you know, politics is often about how the world is, not how the world should be. Uh, you know, I think ultimately uh, uh, political parties should nominate 
the best candidates and those candidates should stand on the merit, but there's no doubt that uh, that partisan label has an influence uh, for better or for worse. Uh, I ran for office in 2020. I ran for the Crest de Hisa Harbison Canyon Granite Hills Planning Group, uh, where I won. And that is an area that is 51% Republican. And so I made sure that all the Republicans in uh, in that planning area knew that I was endorsed by the Republican Party. And that helped me uh, a great deal. During the last election, you contributed to our coverage. Thank you. Um, but we talked about Republican sort of performance in the Southwest and maybe the party needing to do some work to improve its image or capture more of the vote. What do you think needs to be done? So the Republican brand nationally, by and large, has worked pretty well. Um, until recently, we held the White House. Uh, we held uh, the, both houses of, uh, of Congress, a majority of the governors and the majority of state legislatures. So the national Republican brand has worked pretty well. However, that, that performance is not uniform across the country. It's not homogenous across the country. There are some places where it works very well, there are other places it doesn't work as well. And what's happened in recent years is that the national party brand throughout the Southwest has weakened. Uh, and so states like Colorado, uh, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, uh, we're all going to go to, to the Democrats. California, we're all gonna go to the Democrats in the presidential election. It really came down, Arizona and Utah were the only states in the Southwest which had a chance of going Republican and Utah did and Arizona did not. And so while the brand works pretty well nationally, it is not working as well in the Southwest. And uh, and what, what do we know about the Southwest? Well, it has a very high percentage of Latino voters uh, and, uh, and many of them, uh, too many by my judgment, in other words, Republicans need to improve their performance there. Uh, have been voting uh, for the Democrats. And as we started off this conversation, uh, I think that that is needless in that many Latinos who come to America are coming here to flee bad government, crony capitalism, you know, et cetera, south of the border uh, in those various countries. And many of them have very conservative values that should resonate well uh, with the Republican party. So it is imperative that the next Republican candidate for president make it a priority to help define the Republican Party brand in a more Reagan-esque way that will, uh, that will improve the party's performance in the Southwest. And the reason why I think that will happen is that it's no longer possible for Republicans to win uh, in the electoral college without winning votes in the Southwest, without doing better in the Southwest. So we need a national party brand as defined by a presidential candidate that will put the Republican Party back in play in Arizona, Nevada, which I think are the two Southwestern states that are the most competitive, uh, and then uh, to aspire to, to doing better throughout the entire Southwest. Well, I've read that Trump actually captured more of the Black and Latino vote in his second election than first. And so if that is the case, why isn't the message sticking in the Southwest? So. You're right. Donald Trump did perform better among non-white voters than any Republican presidential candidate since 1960 or so. But he still lost because there were other demographic groups where Republican slippage was greater than that gain among, among those voters. So uh, there is a lot of work uh, to be done there. And I think part of it, part of it comes down to how we talk about immigration. Uh, and uh, you know, when I ran for lieutenant governor, 
there were a lot of, I got a lot of questions about immigration and the border. And how, what I would say is that I think, particularly coming from a border county, my home is 15 miles north of the border. I think we need a border that is safe, secure, and modern. And the reason is that when we have a border that's not safe, secure, and modern, it creates victims on both sides of the border. In Northern Mexico, it creates victims, and in Southern California, it creates victims and on the US side. And it's also important to recognize that that porous border results in a drug trade and trade runs in two directions. So you have people and drugs coming north, but then weapons and money going south. And so the US has to live up to its side uh, of its responsibility to help shut that down by having a safe, secure uh, and modern border. That's how I kind of talk about it. And when, it, when I talk about it in those terms, I think people understand the need, the value of that. Uh, nobody benefits in Northern Mexico when they can't keep a police chief in Tijuana or you see parts of Northern Mexico re reduced to uh, Waziristan uh, because of the corrupting influence of drug cartels that are only able to flourish when the border is not, is not secure. Your resume has obviously been local, state, national. There's so many things you could talk about. This is the last question I have about um, national politics, but you served on the RNC on the committee that works specifically with states. And I wonder, yep. and that was during the Obama administration from 20, 2007 to 2011. Um, did you see the seed of kind of Trumpism and his brand of populism growing then at the state level uh, when you were in that position? No. Uh, kind what, of the anti-Obama... Yeah, when I was uh, uh, chairman of the RNC State Chairman's Committee, uh, I used that as an opportunity to share ideas and best practices on an operational level among our various state party leaders. And what, what I had found was that there really wasn't a lot of communication laterally, meaning the chairman of one state really wasn't talking to the chairman of another state. They would both talk up to the RNC, but they were not talking to one another. And I tried to break that down so that if a one state party in Ohio was doing something uh, great, that they could share it and, and, uh, and, uh, and spread that to other state party chairmen as well. So it was really on an operational level uh, where, uh, where, uh, where that happened. When I was spokesman for Senator Cruz in 2016 in his presidential campaign, it was very surprising the rise of Donald Trump because here was a guy who described himself as very liberal who had donated to Hillary Clinton's campaign, who was a New York City Democrat uh, for, a, for a period of time. And you know the guy runs for president, he goes down to Alabama, he holds this rally in Mobile, Alabama, 20,000 people show up, and all of a sudden he's competing in the conservative lane in the Republican party. I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. So you have run um, against Newsom before for lieutenant governor, as you said, you got 43% of the vote. If he's recalled, do you think you'll run for governor? Uh, I am not running for governor. I am strongly supporting San Diego's Kevin Faulkner uh, for governor, because I think that uh, he, uh, he really has the best opportunity uh, to become governor and, and his candidacy makes the recall more likely to succeed. And the reason is that many people will be hesitant to vote yes on the recall if they don't have an idea as to who the new governor would be. And Kevin Faulkner has one quality that no other candidate has, and he has proven that he can win in a democratic area. 
and California is a democratic area. So all these other candidates with their magical thinking about how they're gonna, you know, pull this rabbit out of their hat, you know, the time for magical thinking is over. Uh, Kevin Faulkner has proven he can win in a democratic area. He did so for city council. He did so for mayor twice. Uh, and so I think he has what it takes. And he, he's our best shot uh, to, to win in this, uh, in, in, in a recall election, should it be called. Well, what do you think of Newsom's performance and do you think he, he should be recalled? So I support the recall effort. And I think that what's happened here is that, Gavin, the, the events of COVID and the economic consequence of that, I believe have outstripped his ability to manage them. And this is not entirely surprising. I mean, remember when Gavin Newsom was elected Lieutenant Governor, First, he was originally running for governor against Jerry Brown, dropped out, ran for lieutenant governor after having made fun of the position, saying that, you know, you know, downplaying the, the, uh, the role of it. And so he gets elected lieutenant governor. And what does he do? He spends more time on his business. Uh, and, uh, and that was actually reported that people close to him said, oh, well, now he'll have more time to spend on his business because he's elected to this useless office of, of lieutenant governor. And that kind of gives you an inkling as to what his approach has been, right? And that he viewed being lieutenant governor as a stepping stone uh, to become governor. This is not the sign of a person who takes the managerial role of government extraordinary uh, very seriously. And so this is then reflected in, uh, in what has followed. And this is not to say that everyone has done a fantastic job with COVID, but I think that the situation that you see here has outstripped his ability uh, to, uh, to manage it. And the people in California do have uh, the opportunity with our uh, recall law in order to change the management of the state. So what do you enjoy most? You've served in so many roles, local, state, national. Where have you felt the best or like you would want to do this thing forever? National, state, where do you, what's your sweet spot? Um, so I would, I would point to three things uh, you know, because I'm a politics. Of course, I'm not going to only have uh, one answer, but there are a couple <laughs> different things that really stood out. Number one is I really enjoyed when I ran for lieutenant governor uh, because it was much more fun than being chairman of the party. When you're chairman of the California Republican Party, there's like 100 people in Sacramento who can stop you from doing anything. There are all these roadblocks and it's very, very difficult to get things done. But when you're the candidate, you're the boss. And so if you have a vision, you can go out there and advance it. You don't have to worry about roadblocks and so on. It also means that you're singularly accountable you know, for, for the campaign, but that's okay. So it was really fun to travel around the state and being able to articulate some of the solutions that I had in mind uh, for everything from, uh, from the salt and sea to uh, you know, water storage to uh, how we should uh, ban you know, policing for profit. Um, you know, one thing I want to, I went on the Adam Carolla podcast, uh, at one point, and we spent about an hour talking about freeways, speed enforcement and so on. And, and we got to have a really in-depth discussion about how I firmly believe that speed enforcement on our freeways should be focused only on improving safety, not on making our CHP officers into tax collectors, just by putting them wherever the traffic goes fastest. They need to be in those places where greater speed improve, enforcement would improve safety. That should be the number one purpose of, of traffic enforcement. And when you're party chairman, you don't really get to have those discussions in that level of depth. So that was a lot of fun. Number two was when I was spokesman for Senator Cruz in 2016, that was really the greatest job I'd have in politics because you get paid fairly well to talk to a million people a day. And you're the second highest visible person in the campaign. So you know, 
that you're doing a good job because if you weren't doing a good job, you wouldn't be there anymore. Uh, and everybody's seeing it. Everybody in the campaign is seeing those clips because they're emailed around and so everyone knows whether you're doing a good job or not. And so having been with the Senator through the end of his campaign, May 3rd, 2016, apparently somebody thought I was doing a good job, which made me feel good, which was really great. Uh, and I think it played to something that I think I can do well, and that is to have conversations back and forth about politics and campaigns and so on. Uh, and then the third thing I would point to, this is part three of my uh, one part answer, uh, is running for local office in San Diego in 2020 was really great because it allowed me to finally connect with my own community. And we're not talking about big national issues. We're talking about improving wildfire safety. We're talking about signage for evacuation routes and so on. Wildfire safety is a huge issue uh, where we live in East County. And I got to put to you some of what I learned when Governor Schwarzenegger had appointed me to the State Board of Forestry and Fire Protection uh, after the Cedar Fire burned my neighborhood down. Um, my house was not burned down. My property was damaged, but my house did not burn down. And so I got to go back to some of that. And, and now I have an opportunity to apply some of what I've learned to really make a difference in elected office to try to make our community a little safer and a little better. And that's very satisfying. Yeah, we definitely have to talk a little bit more about Ted Cruz. Uh, first of all, do you guys keep in touch? Uh, I haven't spoken to him uh, in a while. Um, uh, I went down to Texas in 2018 in, uh, for his re-election campaign. Uh, I was down there for the month of, the month of October. Uh, and, uh, and so it was great to be part of that. That was a pretty close victory. It was only about a two-point victory. Um, but uh, I haven't chatted with him recently. I am going to see him on, uh, we're doing an online program uh, together on, uh, on Wednesday. So uh, we'll see him virtually then. Having been a spokesperson for a national candidate, what did you learn about the press and kind of how, and obviously having been involved so long, maybe you've seen some changes and some um, kind of, you know, it, maybe it's different now than it was, you know, when you were in the RNC, but what did you learn about the press and kind of what was your view of how the candidates are treated and all of that? Yeah, so that, that's really, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm actually delighted that, that you've asked that because I think there are a couple of things. First, I want to start by saying, I am not one of these people who's constantly beating up on everyone in the news media and, and so on. I think there are examples of bias. I think there are examples where uh, journalists will uh, alter the vocabulary that they use, for example, or how they characterize certain things based upon what their own perspective is and so on. That having been said, one thing that I learned is that there's a tendency, particularly on cable news, to try to uh, devolve every issue into just two sides. And very rarely are there only two sides to an issue. Very, a lot of these issues are more complicated. So it's almost like the ESPNization of political coverage, right? So ESPN would have, you know, somebody from this team and, you know, somebody from that team and uh, you know or representing that point of view because in football there's only two teams on the field in baseball there's only two teams on the field in soccer there's only two teams on the field so it's very easy to break everything down into two sides but politics is not that way even though there are only two major political parties a lot of these issues are far more complicated but you would not know that from watching most of the cable news coverage which just wanted to break it down from one side versus another that's one thing i i really learned the second is that if there's a choice between picking the sensational side of an issue 
versus the substantive side, the tendency is overwhelmingly to go with the, the sensational side rather than the substantive. And I think the part of that is ratings driven. Uh, and, uh, and we certainly saw that. And the, and the third thing I learned is what is, uh, is the influence of ratings. What we found in the 2016 campaign is that for every one minute that Ted Cruz had on television, Donald Trump had 10. And our one, Donald Trump's 10 minutes were spent talking about whatever Donald Trump wanted to talk about. And our one minute was spent talking about Donald Trump because Trump was better for ratings than any other candidate. And so what you found on uh, CNN, for example, we would have three televisions on in the campaign headquarters and, uh, and all there was is a podium. Like Trump is not even there yet. They just had a podium and then the, the, the journalist, the anchor was in a little box on the side of the screen. But the big thing was the, just a blank podium and there's nobody there, nobody speaking because Jeffrey Zucker and the leadership of CNN learned that for every second they had that Trump podium up there, people in airports and elsewhere would stop and watch to see what crazy thing Donald Trump would say next. And he mastered that and he played the media like a violin to his great advantage. And that I think was the single greatest thing that, uh, that he brought to the table. The fourth of three things I learned was <laughs> that, um, uh, you know, everyone thinks that Fox, uh, you know, Fox is, uh, you know, would have been the most favorable to Senator Cruz because he was a Republican. That wasn't true at all. Fox is one of the hardest networks on Senator Cruz because I think certain people at Fox had already made a deal, you know, uh, with the, the Trump people or with Donald Trump himself. And, uh, and so some of these hosts that you would think would be natural allies were really tough on Senator Cruz because they were already looking in that direction. At the same time, we had a debate inside of the, the campaign one day over whether or not we should even bother appearing on MSNBC. And the side that wanted to go on MSNBC, which included me, we won. And why? Because 30% of MSNBC's audience is Republicans. And we were in a Republican primary. And so if you're on MSNBC in primetime, you're talking to a million people. 30% of a million people is 300,000. So do you want to talk to 300,000 people for free for 15 minutes? Yes. Do you know how much money and airtime that would cost if you were to buy that? So of course you want to appear on MSNBC. And it worked to our advantage every time because every time the host would ask some question that comes from a, a leftist perspective, which was perfectly fine because then I could respond with showing what a hardcore conservative Ted Cruz was. And for the 30% of the audience that we wanted to reach, that worked very well. So again, it goes to show how the media world is much more complicated than it gets uh, portrayed to be. And the political side is much more complicated than it gets portrayed to be uh, as well. And I think you only learn that fully when you're immersed in it for some period of time. At least that's how I, that's how I learned that. So you work for the Leadership Institute, and your goal is to teach conservatives of all ages how to succeed in politics. Um, what is the what kind of work are you doing here in California? So um, I run the international division at the Leadership Institute, uh, and uh, and so my job is I get to travel before COVID around the world and help to train conserv conservatives from center right, uh, center right background, and other countries. 
um, how to communicate, how to raise funds, how to basically the, the, the nuts and bolts uh, of, uh, of politics. We've done that in more than 20 different countries around the world. Uh, we've done that with the Conservative Party of Canada, the Liberal Party of Australia, the Liberal Party is the center-right party in Australia, uh, and so on. And, and so we don't tell anybody what their position on issues should be. There are plenty of think tanks that provide that type of information, but we teach them nuts and bolts. And so, um, when I was in the College Republicans at age uh, 18, that's when I first learned of this group called the Leadership Institute. And I went to seven different schools over the course of several years. Uh, and I learned how to write a press release, how to write an op-ed, uh, how to get in the newspaper, um, how to give a speech, how to, you know, how to go door to door in campaigns, because you don't learn any of that in political science class. You know, generally, you you know, you, when you're in poli sci 101, 201, or 301, you're usually not learning the skills necessary to win uh, in politics. And so, Leadership Institute is a nonpartisan organization, uh, and uh, it's conservative um, in terms of it. It, it is it, the purpose is to train conservatives, but it has an open admission policy, uh, and anyone can learn about it by going to leadershipinstitute.org/training uh, and can sign up for a, for a training. And you can see there uh, what uh, what it is that uh, that we teach. And what we find is that if you have conservative candidates or people involved in politics who've been trained they're more effective and they're more, more likely to be successful in the public policy process. Okay, and finally, I guess we're not gonna see you run for governor anytime soon, but do you ever plan to run for public office again? Well, I did in 2020 and I, I won you know, election to my, uh, to my local planning group uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, Crest, Hisa Harbison Canyon and, uh, and Granite Hills. Um, and uh, you know, I, I plan to be involved, but what, what drives me is that I like advancing those ideas, which I think improve the lives of other people. Uh, and uh, I think there are two classes of, of politicians out there. I think that one class of politicians are people who run for office to be somebody. They want a title, they want a role, they want to be called the honorable. It's like some dream of theirs to be an elected office. The second type of politician is someone who runs for office to do something. And those are the best ones, Reagan, Thatcher. These are people who ran for office to accomplish something. The reason why the first type is dangerous is that if someone runs for office just to be somebody, once they win, they've already accomplished their job. Everything else is, everything else is negotiable, right? Because they've already got their title, they've got their, you know, whatever they wanted out of it. But people who run for office to do something, Ronald Reagan's job started when he was sworn in not when he was elected. It started in January of 1981, not in November of 1980. And so, you know, when I run for, for something, you know, in my little East County office, I want to make our neighborhood safer from wildfire. That is my goal. Uh, I want to do something. I don't need the title. I don't need to have to attend a meeting once a month, I, you, know, uh, you know, et cetera. There's the sacrifice involved there because I travel so much for work. But I want to make East County safer because I am convinced that government is not doing everything possible to make our communities safer from wildfire. It's just not. And I can give a long list of reasons why. There's not sufficient evacuation routes. There's not sufficient fire breaks. There's not sufficient resources put into uh, fuel reduction and so on. There's a long list of things that government can do better. And if I can move that needle a little bit, I'm going to feel better about it. What the future holds, you know, I don't know. Um, I was elected party chairman. I think I'm the youngest 
I think I was the youngest state Republican Party chairman in the history of the party, I think. Don't hold me to that, but I think that's the case. I was uh, 37 when I was elected and I was 41 when I, when I left office. Uh, and, uh, and so I still have a number of years left ahead of me to advance those ideas uh, that, uh, that I think will improve things. Uh, and I think that uh, the ideas that are at the Republican Party um, uh, have an opportunity to improve the lives of other people when they're put into action. And so uh, I hope to continue to do that as long as I can. All right, we hope you enjoyed this interview and we'd love to take this opportunity to shout out some of our recent episodes, including interviews with actress Kelly Marie Tran, USD film professor Eric Pearson, and author Marisa Reichardt. You can find them on the podcast app you're listening to right now. And while you're there, maybe you'd be interested in leaving us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback and appreciate the support. Thanks to Ron for joining us on this episode and to all of you for listening. Stay safe, San Diego.